Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, defunding the police and how it's been covered in the press. So the last week and months have brought a lot of conversation about policing, about systemic racism, about how we should rethink policing. And a lot of the conversation, especially in recent weeks, has sort of centered around this notion of defunding the police. It turns out that looking at the press coverage of defunding the police is a really interesting way to look at the various approaches that news outlets take to the police question, depending on who they are. It's going to be covered much differently in mainstream, big national outlets than it's covered in the black press, than it's covered in the progressive media, than it's covered in conservative outlets. And it's to me, it's a really interesting kind of way to look at how these ideas sort of float through these various places and how reporters at these places, a lot of them sort of think that they're discovering this stuff for the first time, which seems to be uh, one of the, the storylines of defunding the police. I'm really happy to be joined today by Jack Herrera, who is a writer who's looked at this question and has written a terrific piece for uh, CJR and the new CJR print magazine about the idea of defunding the police and how it's kind of tracked through both mainstream and non-mainstream media. So welcome, Jack. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much, Kyle. It's good to be on the show. So do you understand what I mean when I say this is kind of an interesting kind of litmus test? I mean, I, I really, and your piece does a great job of like, of, of pointing out the fact that this notion of defunding the police is being treated even in the last few weeks by a lot of big national mainstream outlets as a completely new idea when in fact it completely is not. Yeah, I think that in many ways that if you got your entire view of the world or the country from reading national media or watching cable news, which of course is is how a lot of people do form their ideas of what's going on in the country, uh, you would think that this idea of defunding the police or in general moving away from police power and the way we do public safety in this country was a pretty novel idea or had come into being from the protesters currently out in the streets uh, following the murder of George Floyd, um, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and other people who have lost their lives to police violence um, in recent months. But that, of course, isn't the case, that there has been a long, decades-long movement, multi-generational movement, to think of a world where we handle uh crime and violence and public safety without the mechanisms of armed crime fighters or with prisons and jails. Um, and as it's a long movement with a with a, a deep heritage in this country. I think the key thing is, is that that heritage has taken place in the sorts of communities where, unfortunately, many national reporters and journalists don't come from. And that's to say, uh, over-policed neighborhoods, um, majority black communities, uh, black feminist spaces. Um, and I think that that's part of the reason why it appears to many journalists as a very new novel idea and a very new movement when in reality it goes much deeper and much has a much longer history than that. What is your take of the tone of the early coverage? And when I say early, I mean, we're, we're, we're still here talking about the last you know, 45 days or something. Yeah. Um, the early coverage in the sort of mainstream press of this, I mean, one of the interesting things that you point out in your piece is that it fairly quickly was taken up as a kind of political horse race issue, which is to mm -hmm. say, 
um, oh, the Democrats are talking about that. That's going to be really bad for Biden. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to like seriously looking at, well, what is this about? And what would that mean? And how is this going to affect people's lives? So was that the original, was it, was, was that the first take of a lot of these outlets was to look at the politics of it? Or does it, was it even more dismissive than that? Was it dismissed early on? as like, well, this is a crazy idea and it's, it comes out of the blue and it's going to go yeah. nowhere. Well, I think, Kyle, what those two different sorts of strains of coverage have in common is reducing the movement to abolish or change, transform policing into the slogan, defund the police. And I think that you see initially, there are two types of coverage. The first one is that there's a whole variety of outlets, often by writers who I think, I think here's, here's, here's the idea of like what what shows the issue with the coverage is that a whole new genre of article was born and everyone from the New York times to the Christian science monitor wrote some version of the article. Here's defund the police. Here's what it means. Like what people are saying, defund the police, like let's explain what they're calling for. And so Mm -hmm. there were a bunch of headlines that were very similar, like click here to find out what defund the police means. And then when you click the article, the content of all those explainers very dramatically, Um, You know, no one was agreeing on the basic definition of what was being talked about. And I think that that's Mm -hmm. an indication that there's a problem that the national media, we, we were facing an issue where we couldn't agree on something as basics, what the definition of this thing is. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, one, I think you have to, in a lot of ways, I feel a lot of sympathy for campaign reporters because they were assigned coverage of the 2020 election, you know, as as long as two years ago. And how could they have predicted where we would be today? And so they're working in a very unknown environment and also in a time when it's the attention to the election, it's probably less attention um, in like the average daily news cycle because of how much other things are going on. Um, and so I do think that, you know, I, I have definitely some patience and sympathy there, but it was disappointing and it could feel um, min- condescending or minimizing in a way when they, instead of actually going into what are these people calling for, like both the protesters in the street and the organizers, who've been working on these ideas for decades, like what do they want and why are they calling for such radical transformation of the police? Instead, there's a focus on how is this going to affect the Biden campaign and not even how would this policy affect the Biden campaign? Because the Biden campaign was immediately very clear that they have no interest in defunding the police, that Joe Biden is not running on any sort of platform to take money from police. And so then it became more a question of how does the existence of this slogan, defund the police, affect Biden's 2020 chances? And I think that the media, in a lot of ways, has been responding to very clear attempts from the Trump administration to, and this is a, a pretty much paraphrasing um, their campaign manager, uh, make the Democrats own this issue, make them the, the party of defund the police, even though most national Democrats have resisted those sorts of platforms changes. Um, and so it's, it's a sort of a focus where the camera is taken away, pivots off the people in the streets calling for this change, pivots off the organizers who have really developed these ideas and fostered them over decades, and it pivots back to D.C. and into the halls of power and focuses on the sort of politicians who were already in reporters' Rolodexes. Um, And I think that that is a sort of shift in focus where, of course, we're going to have to cover how this affects politics, like how this is going to affect electoral politics. But the fact that that shift happened so quickly um, it felt like it was leaving a lot of the people who are central to this conversation out of the conversation. Yeah, and I think that's why this this topic is so important to look at because I think it just proves yet again 
that the default, especially at a lot of political press, is to, is to revert back to the people who are already in power, and mm-hmm. to revert back to the people who, you know, are you know the, the the same people who didn't do anything about this for decades and decades and decades. Yeah. Um, I'm curious whether um, where else you see that manifest in, especially like for example, in the coverage of the uprising and the protests yeah. in the streets. You know, there we went through this phase early on, and and thankfully, I think it's eased now. But we went through this phase where there's a lot of talk about looters and a lot of, of talk about uh, law breaking and whatever. I sort of think that falls in the same under the same problem, don't you think? Yeah, you know, I think that um, why sometimes it can feel like it's simplifying things to put them in these terms. I do think that so much of these issues with both how politicians have taken up the folk energy like the mass movement that's happening in the streets and the political press is taking it up is that i think it's abundantly fair to say that most journalists um national journalists and most national politicians themselves don't have a lot of experience with police violence with police brutality with over policing in their neighborhoods yeah and so the most visible things for us are the most dramatic uh, the most fiery, so you know, looting or or um, you know, broken windows. That is what's so disrupting and so new and 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 seems perilous and dangerous to us. So we we like journalists have a tendency to to focus on those issues um, because you know it's it's difficult to understand where that's coming from. Um, and likewise, the same same instincts exist with politicians. Um, I think what's so interesting about journalists' willingness to cover what was once considered a fringe or radical idea, which is abolishing or defunding the police. Um, I have to consider that part of that might have come from the fact that in the last month, so many journalists who themselves have never experienced police violence have, unfortunately, been subjected to that sort of um, brutality. We've seen reporters shot with rubber bullets, you know, Uh, I, I know a photographer who lost her, her eye permanently because of a tracer round. Um, I was, I like many other journalists, I was tear gassed while covering a protest in Oakland. Yeah. And I think that that sort of um, lived experience, I think is the best way to describe it, has produced in a sense of paradigm shift where you realize that this sort of fact of vulnerability that communities have for the police that's a daily reality for many people in in neighborhoods across the country suddenly became a reality for journalists for perhaps the first time in at least the generation yeah that's so interesting mm-hmm. so um since this is all about how people don't aren't aren't spending the time to understand what these terms mean uh, walk us through the evol- you know the evolution of of this of this movement of this yeah. defund the police and also differentiate the terms here between defund the police and abolish the police. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think that getting to the history of this is what's so important and is what's going to improve our coverage going forward. Um, I think that um, there are two ways to track the lineage of defund the police. And I got this from, um, confirmed to me in a conversation with uh, an ethnic studies professor, Lisa Beria, at the uh, University of California, Riverside who also shared you know, a perspective on her research into this history of what's called the modern abolition movement. And there's two strains of looking at where this idea of defund the police comes from. The first is you look at community organizing that really started taking place around the year 2000. 
uh, two different groups founded by predominantly by black women um, and other women of color, two groups called Critical Resistance and Insight, um, were formed with the explicit purpose of taking power away from police and prisons and transitioning to more compassionate or more nonviolent, uh, what they call transformative justice models for dealing with public safety. And that's where that in that community organizing very early on, as early as you know, 2000, late 90s, um, you see the demand to defund the police. Jack, can I stop yeah. you in there? Um, sure. The, the community approach um, yeah. as an alternative to policing. Like, what are you talking about there? Well, I think the first thing to recognize is that or what's the perception of the police? Of what's the perception of armed crime fighters? Is that they're constantly stopping, you know, armed robberies, bank 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 heists, um, yeah. you know, assaults. Most police officers make that sort of, you know, that sort of like arrest of like an ongoing violent crime once a year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, that is not the majority of their job. The vast majority of police calls are responding to things like noise complaints, um, mm-hmm. you know, responding to people who are experiencing homelessness, people who are experiencing mental health issues, um, and domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And the perception among abolitionists and people who are calling to defund the police broadly is that those sorts of jobs don't need to be done by an armed crime fighter and indeed could be accomplished much more um, elegantly, much more productively, and much more safely by someone who has a different sort of training and a different sort of pedigree. So yeah. when you see someone you know, is experiencing homelessness, like somebody calls, instead of calling 911, perhaps they call 311, and instead of an armed crime fighter who shows up, an armed police officer, a social worker shows up who can connect that person with housing resources, um, can connect that, you know, it's like check in on them, make sure they're doing all right. Just, I guess, from a framework of care. Likewise, yeah. when somebody's experiencing a mental health episode, instead of people with guns showing up, you have trained psychotherapists or people who are almost have like a first aid experience with mental health who can help deescalate the situation. And I think yeah. that's the idea of like, that's, that's, a, that's the first idea is that we it's so rare that you actually need an armed response. Um, The deeper issue then is also that I think it's fair to say that abolitionists and people calling to defund the police have a very, I think indeed radically different idea of where crime comes from than the narrative that most of us are raised with, which is the idea Mm -hmm. that it's bad people doing bad things. There's an idea that when crime happens, that is not a, a question of individual morality, but rather a question of, social ill that yeah and, and a social problem yeah it's yeah. a systemic problem that like if yeah. you're and i think i think most of us do have a pretty easy implicit understanding of that which is that if you're hungry and that leads you to steal food does that make you a criminal you know yeah. you're responding to the the facts of your situation and i think that abolitionists see that very broadly as they see that the the reason that we have all sorts of different crimes is not because of their bad people out there, but because there's systemic failings that are keeping people in poverty that are keeping them in cycles of trauma and violence that are hard for them to, you know, that they don't get the sort of resources and help to get out of. Um, yeah. And I think that that's the idea is that instead of investing in police budgets, instead of militarizing the police, we should divert that money to counseling, to schools, to anti-poverty programs. And that would go a lot more further towards diminishing violence in this country. And then, so for the abolitionists, um, yeah. who responds to the um, usually white lone male with a gun in a school? Yeah, and so I think these are these are. I think it's important to preface this question by saying that abolitionists 
you know, they're, they're focused on such a wide range of issues that I think often, you know, like the deeper issues of violence in society, like keeping people safe and diminishing harm, that's, that's like the kind of the tip of the iceberg. It's like the, the art, you know, the, this is the most extreme example is like a mass shooter, yeah. for instance. Yeah. And so that's most of the work of abolition is, is, you know, going to be focused on problems that are, you know, more, more constant in our daily lives in this issue. And I think that's important to preface because, you know, I think like often abolitionists can get tired, feel like it's a bit of a distraction to talk about the most heinous, the most, you know, absurd yeah. crimes. Um, yeah. But when it comes to, when it comes to a mass shooter, for instance, um, I think that there's two ways of going about it. The first one is that there's, I think constantly when we see these news stories, you read about uh, the sort of upbringing a lot of these people had or the, the traumas they themselves mm-hmm. experienced. They'd been subjected to violence. They'd been, um, it's, it's often child abuse is uh, something that appears again and again. And the idea is like, if we want to stop mass shootings, um, obviously the police have not been able to deter or stop mass shootings. They might be able to end them after they've started. But the deeper work to stopping this thing from happening isn't going to be arming police, but rather putting, you know, way more counselors in every school, um, putting out more resources to help people who are experiencing violent urges connect to help um, instead of act on these urges. It's similar to, you know, people dealing with, uh, you know, suicidal ideation. There are people who are dealing with homicidal ideation. How do you connect them with resources to help them? And that's not to say violence is explicitly a mental health issue, but it is saying that counseling and those sorts of resources are useful to people who are experiencing these sorts of, of desires um, that could hurt people. The next question is like, what, what are you going to do actually in a sort of active shooter situation? Um, Abolitionists are the first to say that they don't have an answer for everything. They're working for a broader paradigm shift. And they're saying that, you know, we need to experiment. We need to work with our communities to find ways to respond to this. But I think the idea out there is that, you know, every person, even the, you know, what we consider like the most heinous criminal is a salvageable human being who deserves a chance. And that I think that that mindset leads to this idea that even in that sort of most terrifying situation, is there a a possibility of nonviolently de-escalating? I don't know the answer to that, but perhaps there is. And then also, are there nonviolent ways of disarming someone or, you know, um, uh, making sure that they're not, they, they, you know, ending a rampage? Um, Are, is there a way of doing that that doesn't involve pulling a gun? Yeah. Um, Or at least like a, you know, gun, gun with live rounds. So what do you think? Let's 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 play a thought experiment. Let's yeah. say that newsrooms, especially big national newsrooms, actually look like the communities that they cover. Yeah. And that reporters and editors and producers in those places actually did live this experience that we talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, what would the coverage look like, do you think? Yeah. You know, so I th- I've talked, I think it's so important to say that this movement to defund the police and a lot of people call themselves police and prison abolitionists. This movement is so deeply connected to the black feminism movement in this country and more broadly, the black liberation movement. And so I think that what I've heard described um, as like a mindset, the mindset that leads to somebody to want to abolish the police is often connected to um, what some people would call a black feminist epistemology, which is to say the worldview of, people who have lived their lives as black women, which is leads to from the, the women I spoke to for this article, the black feminists I spoke to for this article, they described it as this perception of violence that is different than mm. say a white man's mm-hmm. where they, 
black women are at the center of a, a matrix of violence that includes state violence, police violence, um, gendered violence, domestic violence, and sexual assault. Um, uh, you know, crim, you know, violent crime. Um, and it's that sort of network, uh, that intersection of those different forms of violence leads to a, a broader or different perception of where violence comes from and how it spreads. And I think that that is the sort of perspective that would be so productive and so generative in newsrooms if it was more represented. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's, you know, I think that part of the reason why was abolition not covered prior to May and June of 2020, I think it's because there's not enough black women in yep. and black femmes in media. Um, and the other thing is, if you come from a neighborhood, it, you know, it's, it's really, your perception of the police, of course, are so governed by the neighborhood you grow up in, and also the body yep. you grew up in. But if yep. you think that the police is mostly helping you, is mostly keeping you safe with some aberration, that goes a lot to tell tell me at least what zip code you, what sort of zip code you grew up in, what sort of neighborhood you grew up in, because there are huge swaths of the country that do not think of police as, as a benevolent force. At yeah. best, they think of it as a deeply flawed force. Um, and at worst, it's, you know, an actively antagonistic, violent force, destructing and causing violence onto a community. And I think that perception is tragically missing from journalists, not just because of the fact that journalism has a problem with, uh, classism there's not enough people from uh you know lower income and over police neighborhoods in journalism and there are not enough black and brown people in journalism but then also the fact that our profession is often built around uh centering and establishing access to institutions like police departments mm-hmm. which make us less able to see that perspective that whatever you want to say about it there's plenty of people in this country who do not see the police as a positive in their lives. And I think that that yeah. we need more journalists who understand or at least come from communities or even come from their own experience that lends them that perspective. So, you know, even though um, I think there's been a, a long overdue reckoning over the last um, month or so in newsrooms to, yeah. to recognize how, how far behind they are and, and having a, a newsroom that is representative of, of what it should be. I mean, I think that yeah. we, we did, we did a, a big, we did a whole magazine on this a bit ago. And I think the numbers are 17% of newsrooms are non-white versus yeah. about 40% of the country. And yeah. when you look at newsroom managers, the number is much, much less. So we have this, but we, so we have this problem where there, you know, hope, you know, newsrooms now, I think, sort of are recognizing it and they're starting to address it, but it's going to be slow. And I'm not yeah. even totally convinced that their hearts totally in it, but let's yeah. say it is, but that doesn't, that's a, that's a longer term thing. We have a problem now where we're, we need to cover this defunding issue seriously before we have fully representative newsrooms. We have to yeah. do it now. So give us, give some advice to newsrooms that aren't where they should be uh, in terms of staffing and hopefully they're trying to to fix that problem. But so what do they do in the interim? Yeah, I think the most important thing is taking whether or not you want to value, like whether or not wherever newsrooms end up falling on this demand to defund the police as a policy issue, taking it more seriously as a movement, which uh-huh. is to say, you know, not condescending and not minimizing this to a specific policy proposal, even if you, you know, like there are, you know, places who decided have done their research and said, you know, we think this will be a bad idea. Yeah. It's necessary right now to go deeper than that 
and have reporters assigned to these stories reading the history, starting with you know Angela Davis, um, you know black feminist icon, writing about the problems of the police as early as 1971, while she sat in a in a jail cell in Marin County. Um, have people yeah. looking at the work of organizations that she Angela Davis co-founded with other other collection of black feminists like uh, Cure, like uh, Critical Resistance and uh, like Incite, um, and now Survived and Punished and Dream Defenders, which are organizations across the country who have been working, you know, for most of the, you know, the 2000s and then the 2010s on defunding the police or transitioning to new forms of, of justice in this country. And I think that that's like recognizing that if you're going to report on this, you're going to need to know this history. You're going to yeah. need to appoint yourself with the organizers who have long been in this movement. And just take it very seriously. Is it whether or not what, whatever you think of this proposal, it's coming from a deeply earnest place. And for some people, it's almost it's I've heard it described as spiritual, like the community you find yourself mm-hmm. and the perspective it gives you about other people is profound. And I think that taking yeah. that seriously is going to be important. Um, and then I think a second part of that, more practically with covering this movement, is recognizing journalists need to recognize that it doesn't really work in the same way that we expect a social movement to work. Um, and that's, I think I can boil that down to two main issues, which is that abolitionists are often not as deeply invested in electoral politics as uh, journalists would like to assume. Uh, you know, yeah, it's mass, mass, I think like direct action. Um, yes, like going to city council meetings and working on electoral politics, but also obviously protest, community organizing, um, community power building, um, you know, like scholar, like research groups, there's all sorts of different work that's happening to make the, like the dream of a police free future possible that exists very far away from say a presidential election. And so if this seems like, Oh, abolish the police, defund the police. That's a bad idea for Democrats. That's not going to get Joe Biden elected. It's very important for journalists to understand that that is not abolitionists, most abolitionists, most pressing goal. And so reporting on it that way is going to lead to problems in our coverage. Uh, the next issue is that we, ex- I think journalists, and I'm, I myself am absolutely, you know, like when I'm new to a story, I look for a leader of an organization, a spokesperson, um, someone who can, you know, speak on behalf of a broader group of people, a broader movement. And this ab- modern abolition um, has eschewed or uh, explicitly avoided creating a leadership structure that puts one person in charge because it's that's seen as a, um, a masculinist uh, model is what I've heard it described as, and also a model that puts, you know, a lot of onus and even sometimes danger on certain people. I had one organizer say that none of us is trying to be Malcolm or Martin because, of course, both those men were killed. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that um, I think it was Patrice Colors, uh, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, who described the Black Lives Matter movement and also the abolition movement as a leaderful movement. That it's not that there aren't any leaders; it's that it's a horizontal leadership structure where every member of these organizations is in a sense a leader. And I think that that's going to be a paradigm shift for us as journalists that we're not gonna, you can't really go to like the spokesperson for abolition. You can't really mm-hmm. go to the spokesperson to defend the police. You're going to learn how, we're gonna have to need to learn how to include a variety of voices in an article explaining, you know, what abolitionists think. Right. And it actually, it, it's gonna require journalists to not, I mean, you're going to actually have to understand the argument as opposed to just like trying to to pin the whole thing on a personality. Yeah, I think absolutely that's the case. Yes. So um, finally, what is your level of optimism that any of this these prescriptions that you just laid out are actually going to happen in newsrooms? 
Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I have to say, I think like other um, journalists, I, I do have the perception that there is, at least at this moment, a pretty serious reckoning happening. What I do worry about are the limits of what we might call representational politics, which is that newsrooms that are built fundamentally for white audiences and, you know, like legacy publications built by, built by white editors and white publishers for white audiences. It's difficult to entirely retool those publications. You know, I think that it goes, the, the job of reforming these publications goes further than simply putting, uh, you know, black people and other people of color mm. in positions of power, hiring them as reporters. I think that's a great start, but I think that that's, I think what makes me optimistic is I do think that's going to happen. I do think there's no lack of talented black and brown reporters and editors out in the country. And I do think that if area, you know, outlets are serious about promoting their work, they will have no trouble filling both, you know, the highest leadership positions to the, you know, the entry-level reporters, metro reporters with these sorts of, uh, with, you know, with journalists from these communities. But I think that what makes me not pessimistic, but I guess cautious in my optimism is recognizing how serious that goal, noble goal of reforming media is, like how deep a project that is, that it's going to go so far beyond hiring that I think that it's, you know, I'm hoping that we're in the process of that movement, but it's going to take a lot more than having, you know, say a more diverse editorial staff. Mm -hmm. Jack, this was so interesting. Yeah, thank you so much, Kyle. It's been great to talk with you. Thank you for coming on. You can read Jack's piece on defunding the police um, on CJR.org in, in our new print issue of the magazine, which will be in your mailbox soon. And you can also read everything else we've got on CJR.org and subscribe to our daily email, The Media Today. Thanks for listening. See you next week.